Fighting for freedom every day. Broadcasting from the heartland of America. The next generation in conservative talk radio. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into it. It is a Friday. Pat yourself on the back, man. You made it. End of the week. The celebration can continue or at least begin if you're on your way home starting off that weekend. Shenanigans, welcome into it. Let's carpe diem all over this place. What do you say? This is The Voice Reason. I am Andy Hoosier broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation in Wichita, Kansas on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country. Multiple radio stations, TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch or listen to us. We always love you to death. Your millennial general reporting for duty. Like we do every single day. Obviously, too, it's so frustrating, man. We get ready for the weekend. We're so close. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then, of course, breaking news happens. And all hell breaks loose, so to speak. We'll get to all that here in just a moment. Don't you worry. We'll put it into context for you momentarily. Coming up on the program, we have Nick Stark. He is the Director of Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force for ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, another one of the great organizations we love having on this program. We will chat with him. There is a new study on states that rank for the best and worst when it comes to funding their state employee retirement plans. (laughs) And I'm just here to say there are some states that are not funding it all, are doing a good job at all. So we'll break some of those numbers down here in just a bit and figure out what states are doing right, what states are doing wrong, and how do we get some of those back on track. I can tell you right now that here in Kansas, where I'm based out of, that we are on that bottom of that list that's not doing too well. Why? Well, Democrat policies, for example. So we'll get to all that here in just a little bit. But uh, let's go ahead and just kick off right out of the gate, man. There's a lot of breaking news happening here, quick and heavy. What's trending today? As if you have not paid attention or been following this at all, there is a decision that was made, oh, just, I don't know, about a half an hour ago. Big breaking news across the nation is according to uh, Newsmax.com that a New York judge has ruled that Donald Trump must pay more than $364 million in penalties over what they say was a year-long scheme to dupe banks and others with financial statements that inflated the value of the former president's uh, assets that he had under the company. Uh, (laughs) Now, all right, hold on. I am going to forewarn you here that this is one of the dumbest, biggest scam cases that we've ever heard and i know the other side of the aisle is going to be like oh of course you'd say that no you just don't understand you you just want to try and defend donald trump no I'm, i don't care who this is even if this were a democrat quote unquote that was under this investigation this is one of the dumbest cases that i've ever heard this is like the level of like mar-a-lago saying that his mar-a-lago home's only worth like 18 million dollars or whatever it was when that's like the value of his garage alone not the entire home so this is a bit ridiculous now The media, obviously, is going all giddy and goo-goo-eyed over this because they are relishing in it. And there's a deeper meaning that we'll talk about in a minute. But right now, the media, while they're happy about this, they say, according to some like MSNBC, who just recently said that it's not enough, even with what they're doing. Before we play that, though, according to the report, he has to pay more than $364 million in penalties. Both of the sons, Don Jr. and Eric Trump, both have to pay $4 million dollars in penalties and Donald Trump is not allowed to be associated with any business be on the name of any business or be associated with any business in the city of New York City for three years now 
for most people, if the government came in and told you you're not allowed to run your business for three entire years, are you able to recover from something like that? I mean, this is literally the way for them to say we're going to just destroy your business after the empire that you built in New York and other places as well, that we're going to destroy you. We will come after you. We will destroy you because why the hell not? That's what we want to do. So this is their end goal. And this is what they've decided to do here in New York. And while this seems like a bit of a harsh punishment, kind of ridiculous, the media giddy about it, but also upset that it doesn't even go far enough because he's allowed to come back into business afterwards. Uh, uh, just reading out loud, in order to borrow more and at lower rates, defendants submitted blatantly false financial data to the accountants, resulting in fraudulent financial statements. When confronted at trial with the statements, defendants, fact and expert witnesses simply denied reality. And defendants failed to accept responsibility or to impose internal controls to prevent future recurrences. As detailed herein, this court now finds defendants liable, continues the appointment of an independent monitor, orders the installation of an independent director of compliance, and limits defendants' right to conduct business in New York for a few years. But Lisa, this is not a lifetime ban. It's not a lifetime ban, nor is it the ban on his participation in the real estate industry that the attorney general sought. But what it does do is recognize the harm to the public. You know, Donald Trump throughout this trial kept shouting about various defenses that he had. One of his favorite ones was that nobody was harmed and the banks loved him and everybody got repaid. And Judge Ngoron in this decision is wholesale rejecting that, saying timely and total repayment of loans does not extinguish the harm that false statements in on the marketplace. Indeed, the common excuse that everybody does it is all the more reason to strive for honesty and transparency and to be vigilant in enforcing the rules. <laughs> Here, despite the false financial statements, it's undisputed that they have made all required payments on time. The next group of lenders to receive bogus statements might not be so lucky. Wow. Okay. So that audio from MSNBC. I, I, I know. I know. Let's break this down for just a moment here, shall we? Uh, while everybody, quote unquote, does it with the real estate market, while everybody does it, and that's the argument that she says that he tried to use, that doesn't mean that. And we're going to try and bring some transparency. We're going to start holding businesses accountable. I would like to remind you that let's just let's just assume for just a moment. And, of course, I don't know the details of the case. I don't know how much Donald Trump may or may not have tried to inflate his value and his assets for the businesses in order to get loans. The fact of the matter is he did pay all of his loans back, as far as we're aware, from the banks. Or else, of course, the media would be running rampant with all of those. That all these banks uh, you know, defaulted and that he made all this money and he never paid it back. And none of that happened. None of that happened. So, of course, they're grasping at straws in a desperate state to try and find something against Donald Trump. Looking at the broader picture here, we have to recognize that they've tried to silence Donald Trump for years on the campaign trail in 2016 for the four years while he was president. And now he's running for president again while his uh, popularity numbers and poll numbers continue to rise and showing that he beats Joe Biden across the nation and that he's beating him in every major swing state across the nation, giving concern and the panic button for the Democrats. So as we like to remind you, hey, Democrats, your desperation showing you might want to cover up. Because that's exactly what's going on right now. And they realize that while they can't beat him by throwing him in jail and throwing him off the ballot, this is the next best thing. Remember, this is just like the Second Amendment issue, where if they can't rightfully outright take firearms away, they'll find different angles to attack the Second Amendment to where it makes it obsolete. You try and ban the manufacturers. You try and stop the production of bullets. 
You try and do background checks for everybody. You try and do it in small little communities. You try and ban it in the cities to where, sure, you have the Second Amendment, but can you really utilize it because there's so many laws built around it? That's what they're doing against Donald Trump. They weren't able to throw him in jail. They weren't able to get him off the ballot. So let's just destroy him financially because we have an unlimited supply of cash. We have an unlimited supply of legal issues that we can throw at him. And we have an unlimited number of corrupt judges and court systems that can go after him just because. And while they say, oh, everybody does it, that doesn't mean that we should do it. That just means that we have to start cleaning house. But yet, coincidentally, Donald Trump's the only one that they're actually going after for, quote unquote, inflating value. Now, if you want to talk about inflating value, like she said, let's talk about it for a second. And to put this into perspective for others, while I'm not a real estate mongol, so I can't talk about the details of what a real estate mongol would do on how you actually value assets, I can't talk about it in that sense, but I can talk about it in other industries as an example. Let's look at the medical industry for just a moment. When the medical industry, let's say your doctor's clinic, your your family physician that you go to every single day, you have insurance, let's say you have government insurance, let's say you have Medicare or Medicaid, and you go into your doctor's, uh, doctor's office and you use your insurance and you go in and they swab your mouth because you may have COVID or may have a cold and they want to swab your mouth to do the testing. When they submit that to insurance... Have they told you how much they actually try to value that swab itself, just the nice little Q-tip that they swab your mouth with? Have they told you how much they try to value that at, so that way they can try and get something back from the government or something back from the insurance company when they actually submit that claim to the insurance company for the just you going to your doctor's office and going to that checkup? They charge like 20 bucks for it, for like a Q-tip, for a napkin. Why? Because you can get the money back through the insurance when they actually submit it. Now, is that napkin, is that Q-tip actually worth and valued at $20? No, it's not. Of course it's not. It's worth a couple pennies. But that's the only way that they can actually get their money. This is kind of what you see in the real estate industry in general. And this is not just Donald Trump. This is everybody. If you have a business, if you have real estate, when you're looking at loans, remember, this is always the battle of what I think my business is valued at versus what the IRS values it to be at, which they think it's a lot more so they can take more money from you, what the appraiser values it at, which is really low. And then if you're trying to sell it like your home, when someone looks at it, they're like, oh, no, no, this is totally worth only like $50,000. It's the ever ongoing battle of what the worth is. And I would think that the value of it would come to the point of based on what you can get with the loan, based on what the bank valued it to be at. Because you are you really saying that the bank is dumb? I've noticed that the Democrats, the progressives, for whatever reason, think that everybody outside of their little circle is a dumb, ignorant fool. Because the bank apparently did no way of actually valuing what his assets were of whatever he was putting up to get a loan for. They totally didn't do their due diligence to actually value his stuff as well, right? So they're calling the banks dumb. And then the banks got paid. They got their loans returned. And they made money. They made money. Donald Trump got his loans. Everybody was happy. Everybody was hunky-dory. But now they're saying this is not good enough. And the reason is, is because this is the desperate state for the Democrats to try and destroy someone financially if they can't do it in other means. Kind of like what they did with Alex Jones. If you remember during the Alex Jones hearing, was he in trouble? I still don't think that he really did anything wrong. 
I think people took his, uh, took things what he did out of context, but they wanted to make an example. And in fact, the prosecutors made it a point and said this openly. They wanted to make an example of him so that way they could destroy him and destroy anybody that tried to follow in his footsteps by settling on a hundred plus million dollar lawsuit that Alex Jones had to pay through his company of Infowars that obviously did not have the value of a hundred million dollars, but they didn't care. We're going to overvalue this at such an extent to where we can destroy you and you can never come back from it. This is what we're up against. This is what we're up against right now. It's all about the money and it's the money battle because they know that they can win at it. They have an unlimited supply. They have George Soros that's funding them. They have other great organizations that are funding them, which, by the way, I don't know if you saw Did you see uh, Huma Abedin, the one that used to run the Clinton Foundation that is now dating one of the Soroses? Say, well, I know. She's dating one of the Soroses. So, of course, they're all in bed together, metaphorically and apparently physically speaking, because they don't care. They're going to destroy Donald Trump and being one of the big financial Mongols out there, they will find a way to go after him. They're doing it with uh, Elon Musk putting some of the regulations and the recalls on Tesla. If you remember the story, what, a couple weeks ago, they're like, oh, there's a recall on tons of these auto-driving vehicles because uh, it crashed. If you are if you know anything about Teslas, it's kind of sort of auto-driving, but you every 10 seconds, 15 seconds, if you don't have your hand on the wheel, it beeps at you, and then the auto-driving goes away because you're not supposed to allow it to drive by itself for miles and miles and miles on end. So that was a stupid one. It's a way for them to recall it, to try and start lawsuits, to try and come after him because of the purchase of X and because he's fighting against their system as someone who actually has money. They don't like that their elite circle has individuals that are outside of that that are wealthy fighting against their cause and they will find a way to destroy it. This court case against Donald Trump is one of the most bogus, stupid, ridiculous court cases I've ever seen and everyone should see that whether you like Donald Trump or not. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. 24 minutes past the hour. It's funny how they think that Donald Trump just walks into a bank, hands a paper, and says, my assets, my building, my business, my whatever is valued at this amount. Take it at its face value and just roll with it and just give me a loan for it. For whatever he was asking for. <laughs> I mean, is that what we think is really going on here? Is that the concept that we're going with? That's, that's the level of Ignorance. I mean, I'm not a major multi-billion dollar business owner. I'm not a real estate mongol, so obviously I can't talk about the details there. But uh, just based on the simple logic of that's what they're assuming, that Donald Trump walked in and said, you overvalued your businesses. Look at this. Like, that's that's the most absurd, ridiculous thing that I think I've ever heard in my life. I don't know how. I mean, you would think as a bank, well, you know what? That sounds great. That sounds like a lot of money. That's awesome. Let's go and do an appraisal and do a value of this just to be sure. So we can compare here and then we'll find the happy medium. We'll, you know, either approve or deny your bank loan and you have really good credit. You haven't defaulted on one of them before. I think it's going to be okay. This is nothing more than the desperation. Again, your desperation showing you might want to cover yourself up just a little bit. Because nothing else worked to go after Donald Trump. So now not being able to do business for three years in New York City, having to pay over $350 million in penalties, 
Each son, Don Jr. and Eric, have to pay $4 million apiece and having an independent observer on the businesses to make sure that he's not involved with them in any way, shape, or form is one of the most absurd things I think I've ever seen in my entire life. But that's what we're having to deal with going into a weekend. So uh, the ongoing attack against him is, again, ongoing. And it's just another example of we're going to make an example out of you to try and crush you and crush your spirit and crush everything about you with your entire movement. Again, Alex Jones was the perfect example of that as well. So this is the next best thing. They go after Trump. They go after Elon Musk. They go after Alex Jones. They go after all these others just to try and say, hey, you know, if you guys want to try and play this financial game with us making that money, yeah, we'll show you who's boss. And then they come after. Speaking of, by the way, finances, just to slightly shift gears here for a moment, we're looking at the potential stepping down of Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman for the RNC, at the end of this month, like in a couple weeks. Why we're doing it in the middle of an election season kind of blows my mind. I don't know. But apparently she's going to make the announcement after the South Carolina primary that's coming up on the 28th, 29th uh, time frame. So that way she can step down. We can allow somebody else to come in. Because of she made the comment that while Donald Trump is the default, I guess, nominee for the Republican side, since no one else has been able to catch him, that there's been some tension between the two. And she said that if Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee and he wants her to step down, that she will be happy to do so. She recently made a trip down to Mar-a-Lago and had the conversation, which apparently was where the unofficial announcement was made. And she plans on making that announcement in a couple weeks after that primary. Now, again, I asked the question on whether that's a smart move to go into an election season. While I'm not personally the biggest fan of Ronna McDaniel, I don't know that during a major election season would be the best time to do that unless that boosts the morale for the Republicans and some of the big donors to uh, donate to the RNC even more because, let's be honest, the RNC has been struggling on cash. The state Republican parties all over the nation struggling on cash. Not to throw my state under the bus right now, but the state of Kansas's Republican Party, we're actually in the red right now. Just throwing that out there. So uh, the state Republican parties all over the country in dire straits, which means at the end of the day, it's going to come up to you and I to decide on what these elections are going to look like in November or in August for the primaries as well, if you have some in those areas. So the presidency, national races, statewide races, ballot issues, ballot initiatives, whatever it may be in your area. This is going to be up to you as the voter and the catalyst to make these changes because the party itself, at least at a national and statewide levels, may may not be the most effective ways in actually making something happen in this season. We're in for an uphill battle, not to be pessimistic, because you know me, I'm the eternal optimist, but we're just kind of laying out the reality of it going into election season early on. And these lawsuits are not going to stop. And you can see how ridiculous they are just to make a point that they really, 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 really don't like Donald Trump and the leadership of the RNC right now. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio, this is The Voice of Reason. With Andy Yes, Hoosier. indeed it is. Welcome back into it on the home stretch here. It's a Friday. Pat yourself on the back. You finally made it. You scream ice cream. We all scream for ice cream or lower taxes or less regulation or something. <laughs> See what we did there? See? Yeah. <laughs> Power up, baby. You can find us all over our social media at Hoosier Reason, H-O-O-S-E-R Reason. I tried to give a few different examples of 
how absurd this court case is against Donald Trump. This you can't do business in New York for three years. And oh, how dare you overinflate your businesses? And again, whether that's true or not, again, I don't know whether he did that or not. But it's not him walking into a bank, handing out a paper and being like, I think that it's worth five billion dollars. There's a process on how these things are actually evaluated and verified and that sort of thing. So if he did try to do that, it wouldn't go very well because there's a process from both sides, from independent sources. So this is nothing more than a sham trying to figure out a way to destroy him, which they seem to be doing a really good job at. Uh, apparently, some of the other cases as well, they're hearing information and intel and, and, and stuff being introduced into courts without even letting it be known public which is normally the court procedure. So the shenanigans in the court system continue. We'll stay up on top of that and talk some more about it here in just a little bit. But I want to shift gears just for a moment. What's trending today? I am really excited to chat about this one because, as you know, we like to talk at things at the state level, things, I don't know, that you can actually have something to do with. You can have an impact on. And right now in the middle of some of the legislative sessions across the nation, this is kind of important, is there are multiple examples of states that, really spend outside of their means. Let's just be honest. Right now, there are multiple states where the vast majority of states, let's be honest, are really the two biggest funding issues that states have are public education and their retirement plans. And obviously, we broadcast in more places than just in Kansas here, but I'm going to use this for an example because this is the one that I know the most, as that 60 to 65% of our entire statewide budget goes towards public education and our CAPERS, which is our state employee retirement plan, here in the state. If you remember a few years back, Illinois ended up filing bankruptcy, one of the first states to ever do that, because their public education and their retirement plan covered 100% of their budget and they couldn't fund anything else in the state. And they're trying to rebuild from that all these years later. Did they fix it or not? I don't know. That's for our next guest to answer. Really happy to have on the program. He is the director of the Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force for ALEC. The American Legislative Exchange Council. Love having them on the program. Any chance we get, Mr. Nick Stark on the line here. Nick, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Hey, we are doing great. Happy Friday. So good that you could join us. I, I This is a fascinating topic of states' retirement plans and how we rank nationwide based on each individual state because there are many of them that are doing well and have their ducks in a row, so to speak, and are properly preparing for their retirement plans for their state employees and other states that mm, not so much. How are we faring right now across the nation? Yeah, well, uh, you know, just a minuscule $7 trillion in, uh, in debt as it goes, as far as it goes for the unfunded <laughs> liabilities, you know, um, you co- you figure that's only a, a, a fifth of what the federal debt's at, but you know, that amounts to, if you, if you kind of flesh that out to what the burden of that would be, if you know, the, the, the bill comes due and the states have to pay that, it's about $21,000 per person. I don't know about you, but I can't afford to do that sort of, you know, pay up $21,000 to the government to pay down these pensions. So really the, the headline is we're not doing so great across the nation on, on uh, pension plans here. That is not good. Now, on average, and I know obviously this varies by state, but on average, what is the percentage of a state budget that goes towards something like their the state retirement plans? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure the specific, but you know, it is. It is a large portion, like you said, and uh, I think it it varies state to state on you know how it, it looks in the budget specifically. But I think one of the things to kind of look at, you know, when it when you talk about how well are these things funded, is things like the funding ratios for these, because um, that kind of gives you an idea of you know the you have the outstanding liabilities and then the percentage of that that's funded and most of the states don't even have 50% of their unfunded liabilities you know 
funded. So the, each year, that's going to be billions and billions of dollars that come out of the budget to go towards paying these, you know, these uh, these pension plans. And you know, it's just it's a lot of money. Yeah, uh, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Now, for those that may not understand, when you talk about some of the unfunded liabilities, talk about this process and how we how we come to this, how we understand this. So we have a pension plan in a state and we have to pay, obviously, a certain amount into it. So that way, the people that are on it and then the future people that potentially will be on it with all these benefits uh, actually get paid and we have the cash for that. But when we talk about an unfunded liability, how is that calculated? Yeah. So we do it through uh, a lot of a different um like contribution rates, that sort of thing, you know, um, growth assessments, that sort of thing. Um, and really, it's a projection for what states are going to have to pay on down the road. So, you know, what they pay out current year is often what gets paid into the budget. But, you know, you if you're legally obligated, either through the statutes, you know, in your state or through the Constitution in your state, to pay down these, you know, to pay out these pensions in future years, that number can balloon if you've got somebody that's, you know, 25 just entering the workforce and they're going to work for the next, you know, 50 years of their life, let's say. And, you know, then they're going to expect to collect benefits. That's a lot of accrued benefits. And so we do a couple different um, accounting um, practices to kind of have a fixed rate for what you can expect to to um, to get out of your investments from what you know is contributed in the meantime. Um, and the bottom line is that not enough is being contributed um, at the moment. Yeah, what a concept. It kind of reminds me of the way Social Security is being done at the federal level to where we're paying into it, but it's paying for somebody on it right now, and then the federal government comes in and just borrows from it anyways to where we don't have the money, and eventually that program's not going to function very well, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's how I, I often explain it to people is, you know, I think a lot of I think of like the interns that I have to explain this to, um, you know, every summer, they understand Social Security and how they're not going to get that. But pensions work very similarly in that, you know, you're not unless it's constitutionally in or, you know, in the state's constitution, you're not necessarily going to get those benefits um, later on down the road. And that's why we talk about, you know, one of the reforms for this is switching from something that's a defined benefit where you're you're obligated to an to a payout, um, or excuse me, you're, you're entitled to a payout from the state um, to something like a 401k style, what we call a defined contribution, um, to where you, the employees putting in, uh, you know, the state matches, that sort of thing. Um, and you can profit a lot more from that, too, I think, in the long run. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about either the retirement plans or Social Security, since that's kind of a great example for this, where are we with the young generation being able to receive some of these obviously social security is set to you know go bankrupt if we don't do anything in like the next 30 years or so my generation i'm 35 probably not going to see something like that unless we do some drastic changes right now and we uh, we see the ongoing especially for pension plans at statewide and at federal levels we see the size of government the public employee side continue to grow we talk about jobs being built by the biden administration the vast majority of jobs that are being grown right now are public sector jobs at statewide levels the biggest growth sector is the public sector jobs this is putting an additional burden onto already what's broken isn't it yeah and i I think you know in terms of like if you're just entering the workforce as a public employee i think you can be pretty certain that you're going to receive your your pension payout later on in your life um unless your state is more statutory because then it's easier if it's statutory uh, protections because then it's easier to undo that sort of thing. I think as far as the payout, states are always going to figure out how to do it. It's just do they issue debt? How do they fund it? You know, that sort of thing. Um, 
but you you know you have and we recently just released a report on uh, other post-employment benefit liabilities. So kind of in the same vein as the pension plans, but this, this relates to things like, um, excuse me, health, healthcare plans um, and different, different things like that. And I think those have, you talk about here in Kansas specifically, those are, those are easier to get rid of short term. So it's high, highly likely that you might not even see those. Kansas hit a point where, you know, they, they had a budget crisis. They had to cut some programs. And the first, one of the first things to go was the OPEB plan. So, you know, if, if it's not constitutionally guaranteed, if there's not some mechanism that makes it difficult to overturn the obligation for the state to pay down these plans, um, there's a good chance you won't see it. That is unfortunate. We're talking with Nick Stark. He's the director of the Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force for ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Let's talk about, we got a couple minutes before we have to take a break here, let's talk about the best and worst states in the nation right now. You guys have come out with your ranking on some of the best unfunded liabilities and worst unfunded liabilities by state with these retirement plans. So let's start at the top. What states are doing the best right now nationwide on this program? Yeah, so if you talk about total unfunded liabilities, your top five are going to be Vermont, South Dakota, North Dakota, Delaware, and Wyoming. And that's typically because there's there's smaller populations. Easier to manage. Um, Exactly, that sort of thing. But in the per capita, those don't always translate over into the top five as well. Um, but, you know, the the bottom five are kind of your usual suspects, the ones that have a lot of public employees, um, you know, large government states. Uh, California is the worst in the nation. They've got, you know, just by themselves, they've got over, you know, a trillion dollars in uh, unfunded pension liabilities. Um, followed by Illinois, as you mentioned, who's just a debacle, and then Texas, New York, and Ohio. Wow. A trillion dollars. How do you come back from a trillion dollars in the hole on a program like this and are promising? I mean, you're essentially giving out IOUs and saying, we promise we'll pay for your retirement when you actually retire. How do you come back from something like that? Well, I tell you, uh, it's it's certainly not with, uh, what is it, the uh, $100 billion budget deficit or whatever <laughs> the current California budget deficit is. It's... <laughs> Not with that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, it, like I said, it's it's changing the structure of it is a large portion of it. Um, if you switch from that defined benefit plan to the defined contribution, uh, you're likely not to continue accruing the unfunded liabilities. And then you can start paying down those liabilities as you go um, as people start, you know, realizing some of those those benefits. Yeah, that it's not actually going to work. Yeah. Nick, hang on the line. we got to take a hard break here. We're talking with uh, Nick Stark, Director of the Tax and Fiscal Policy uh, Task Force with ALEC. When we come back, I want to talk about how we can start changing some of these states and some of the examples of maybe some turnaround states that have figured this out and started going in the right direction. Obviously, Illinois may be working out a little bit, but not a whole lot. California is still not doing too well. What does that mean for this workforce moving forward? in years down the road as they continue to grow their public side. Lots more coming up. Stay here. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason. With Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Got the last few minutes here of the program on a Friday. I know some heavy stuff on a Friday. Trying to get you set for a weekend. We have our syndicated national show on the weekend as well. Our weekend edition of The Voice of Reason. Don't miss that. We have a lot to discuss on there, obviously, as well. With everything going on 
with the news dump that we see at the end of the week, just about every single week. There are only two live national talk, political talk show hosts, uh, shows on the weekend, and we're one of them. So tune in. Don't miss it. Really excited to have you with us. We're hanging out with Nick Stark. He is with the American Legislative Exchange Council. He's the director of the Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force, talking about the failed retirement plan to the statewide level. How do we get them back on track? Which I have to ask you, Nick, we mentioned Illinois because I remember it made big news a few years ago when they couldn't fund it and they, they had to file for bankruptcy, essentially. Now we see Greece kind of doing the same thing on a national scale because they couldn't handle some of the expenses they have. We continue to grow this public sector all over because we just think the government's going to solve all our issues. What's the breaking point, do you think, here? Because it seems like more states are going down this road. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, Illinois is a classic example of what not to do um, in every single regard. Um you know, I, I think Illinois is actually going to continue to see these issues in the future because every time they go to fix it, it's only a temporary solution. Um, and then, it, you know, ultimately they pay it down with things like bonds and then their credit rating starts to slide because they can't pay off the bonds and all all sorts of, you know, crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the issues with Illinois is that I think there's a recognition that they need to, to change, you know, how they do things with their pension plans, but it's so constitutionally enshrined that they actually can't get some of the tweaks that they need to it uh, without altering the constitution in the state. Um, you know, we talk about fixing things. Like I said, it's the defined benefit model, uh, or excuse me, the defined contribution. Ooh, don't tell my bosses I said that. <laughs> uh, it's the, uh, the defined contribution model is, you know, the way to, the way to go with things, um, because, like I said, it works like a 401k. You you make sure you can pay out what you what the state and the employee have contributed over you know the the years of work that they they put in. Yeah, are there states that you've seen that have been an example where they've gone to that system? They they realized it didn't work. They started to go into this this better system, and that they've been able to turn things around. Are there success stories out there right now? Yeah, there's a couple of them, um, and you know we've had some. Tremendous reform um, in this in this regard in the last year. Even um, we've always kind of joked that it, it really only happens about once a decade. You know, you had Michigan in the '90s, you had Alaska in the 2000s, Oklahoma in the 2010s, and then uh, just recently we had a big win up in North Dakota. Um, I think North Dakota was one of the free market, you know, the less talked about free market wins that, that happened this year. And that not only did they cut taxes, but they they fixed their pension plans as well, but making that switch to the defined contribution model. Um, But, you know, it's, it's like any other um, reform that you make that's free market oriented. There's always going to be those that come out to attack it and, and try to, you know, bring it back to the old system. And, you know, we're actually, we're seeing that in places like Oklahoma and Alaska that have had that for a couple of years. And so I think it's in one sense, you know, making the argument that in some of these states and pointing to states like North Dakota and all these that, have made the switch, making the argument that those work, um, but also going back to those states and saying, hey, we should, we need to defend these ideas. Look how good this is doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm curious on what the argument is against them going back to an old system like that. And I know the other side likes to use examples for health care, for retirement, for, you know, vacation, for all the, you know, what Bernie Sanders like to say is look at Scandinavia, look at the great socialist nations we have over in Scandinavia with Denmark and Sweden and what they're doing. But they have a system that's similar to this, don't they? They have the defined contributions that are very much tied into the private sector. Yeah, and I think the the common you know argument against it is that the defined benefit is ultimately going to provide you more 
more in payout when you get when you retire. But you know that's not always accurate. I think it's you have an opportunity to earn more when you pay into a four hundred one k style system. Yeah. Um, and 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 they argue this because it's it's based on a multi- multitude of multipliers. You know from you know what your final salary was to your years of service, and then always some kind of arbitrary you know. It's all the tenured stuff. Oh, I was there for so long, and I may not have done anything, but, you know, you're just going to be guaranteed that amount, so they they love it, which is instead of the free market system of you actually get back the amount that you actually put into it based on your effort and how how you tried to work up the chain. Exactly. What a concept, right? It's wild. Nick, we're out of time, my friend. I love this conversation. It is fascinating to see, and hopefully states can start working on this and start addressing these issues because we have some serious work to do. It's Nick Stark, American Legislative Exchange Council. Nick, we appreciate the time, brother. Let's get you back on again real soon. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, appreciate it. Great conversation. Good stuff. We'll do some more of that again here soon. Until then, we're back at it again on Monday. A whole nother weekend. And it's supposed to be warm across the nation. The global warming hitting us in February, which I'm sure that you enjoy. Until then, be your own voice of reason. Be that catalyst for change. It's time for you to speak up, speak out, speak loud, speak proud, speak the truth, and always speak some reason. This is The Voice Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.